0: At Simon German 600 is obsessed with maps. Big maps, little maps, Dutch mail maps, American sitcom maps. He doesn't mind the odd graph either, such as the comparative data on which beer beverage to drink with your Halloween candy or one that provides serious results-driven data on how many holes people think some objects have, like a donut or a straw. Think about it. He's also a monthly columnist with The Australian and one of the world's top 50 influencers in data science. He backs his opinions with data and evidence and shares a lot of it with his 200,000 followers on Twitter and 37,000 friends on Facebook that like him. Joining SME TV today is the co-founder and director of research for the Demographics Group, Mr. Simon Kustenmacher. Welcome, Simon.
1: Ah, Thank you for having me.
0: I did my best. I did my best. I know we rehearsed it a few times, but it was always going to defeat me because Google misled me, Simon.
1: That's my own fault for moving to Australia with a German name. I figured uh, if Arnold Schwarzenegger was brave enough to do so, uh, so can I.
0: Well, you've been here 12 years now, is that right? We've we've stolen you for 12 years.
1: That's correct. And I think by now I'm considering myself a permanent addition
0: so you've—I um, I didn't cover it because I didn't know how many times to. But you've also put a map out um, on Twitter and Facebook of Australia with all the Australian colloquialisms in it.
1: And I don't think I have mastered all of the uh, all of the funny Australian terms just yet. I'm constantly learning uh, new beauties here.
0: So you know, sicky.
1: I know to chuck a sickie is actually the, yes. in my opinion, the funniest of uh, of of terms in in the Australian language.
0: Because we often forget in in our own colloquialisms, which every culture and language has them, but we often forget that there's a very unique side of it, and that it would be a, completely foreign to anyone that comes into it and going, what is what is how do you chuck a sickie? What is that?
1: So That's right. and, it's and, and... hilarious hearing it. <laughs> That's that's right. Fair dinkum is probably the hardest one to use correctly in a sentence if you're not uh, Australian born, I
0: would argue. And very difficult to understand. So when you first came here, when you had to start marrying up data and you were doing your presentations and you do all your research, you've, you're very relaxed, though, in your presentations with your, it, it's not sarcasm, it's just, it's just real points. And I'll, I'll bring up one where you talk about in one of your presentations that, The demographic of secretaries so that that work of people going into uh, secretarial work is is diminishing if not vanished completely and you said there are no angry mobs out there complaining about where are the secretarial jobs but uh, look i'm going to ask you you haven't spoken to a florist because secretary's day what's going to happen there (laughs) that will
1: probably still be occurring but the flowers will not be going to secretaries because there are Mm -hmm. no secretaries left anymore in our organizations these days we have personal assistants we have office managers in our companies and that's a good thing because the women and we do know that these are essentially the same workers that were used to be secretaries that are now office managers because they are both 98% female in, in this profession. They are significantly higher skilled. They take more responsibilities within a company and they're also earning more money. So that means that um, technological disruption um, doesn't need to be a bad thing. Traditionally, the jobs are more flexible, pliable than we do them justice. And these secretaries of yesteryear managed to collectively transition into uh, office assistance and then earn more money. That's great. That's great news for everyone, actually.
0: It's a great result and a, and a great example of when disruption comes along and works in favour of women. Here's another one that worked in our favour, apparently. Um, There's an increase in males being the primary carers. And you, you you talk about how, you know, women having better paid jobs now, but the male ego is taking a little bit of a beating here.
1: Yeah, the argument or the logic behind this is that we've seen for the last two decades, women outperform men in the education sector, meaning women get better grades in primary, secondary and tertiary education. This is slowly in certain sectors leading to women on uh, equal pay. That means just by the sheer logic of things that eventually there'll be more and more couples where the woman is the higher income earner and that all of a sudden means that once there is a kid in the relationship and after the initial months where it's clearly all about the mom feeding the kid and whatnot then when it's time to return to work there is all of a sudden a price on the male ego If the woman out earns the man by $20,000 per year, the price of the male ego is $20,000. And I don't think that too many households will be willing to pay for the male ego. So we will see more and more males staying at home as the primary carer, which will actually benefit women, not just the women that go back to work, but um, all of a sudden the still overwhelmingly male C-levels in, in the big organisations will come up with a bit more ideas how to um, provide... It'll be
0: more it'll be normal and more, more acceptable and much more even. It won't be just a male or female orientated thing. It'll be the right person for the right job for the right price. Exactly.
1: And then it's really so, a matter of individual households, individual yep. couples uh, to, to make this decision freer, less on so financial problems.
0: I'm taking two things from that data. That girls are smarter than boys, it's and that a... <laughs> the the price of the male ego is twenty thousand dollars. I'm I'm <laughs> going to stick to that. That that's my big takeaway. Now, while you've 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 had an extraordinary amount of data around COVID, um, looking at pre, during, post, which everybody, I mean, this is this is a great time for demographers and and researchers because we're looking at you for all the answers, right? And because it's backed with data and science, you you have some of those answers. So. You make a note that in a post-COVID world, is Australia still a healthy place to invest your time and entrepreneurial energy into it? Is, is it? Is it? Well, and why wouldn't it be? The first qualifier
1: is that we are in the middle of this global pandemic. So all we of a sudden, are, yes. as, a, as a demographer, we are in the breaking news space, which we weren't yep. used to be. But So that's okay. intellectually very exciting. But all the evidence so far, really points to Australia being an excellent place to invest your time and energy in. If you look at how well nations handled um, COVID over the world, we are probably, after New Zealand probably, the best Western democracy uh, in terms of handling COVID. This will be noted by future migrants, by future business, by future investors. We are also very much still located at the footstep of the largest emergence of a global middle class. That is the growth of the big cities in in China and India, which is not an urban slum dwelling population, but it is, as I mentioned, the largest um, urban middle class that ever emerged. And these people are keen to invest money, to get educated and to travel. And we are very conveniently located um, at the footstep of, of of Asia, so we will benefit from this, um, regardless of how long COVID will work uh, will work so out. So it's
0: it's a literal translation when you say it's a healthier place to invest, literally because of the way that we've either dealt with COVID or it just wasn't as bad visited upon us as. as as it has been with other countries for for a, for a change being so far away and being such a big place with not a lot of population has worked in our favor
1: absolutely in the 1960s in in australia we spoke about the tyranny of distance australia being too far away from all the all the good things that happen in the world in times of crisis the the distance that we have, the fact that we are an island with the easiest to protect borders that you could imagine, um, that works in our favour. So it's quite nice that the tyranny of distance argument is completely um, uh, destroyed in in times of COVID.
0: What goes around comes around. It's it's our time to shine. Now, Simon, um, there's been a lot of work And a lot of conversation about how working from home is is changing everything. It's changing our attitude, how we look, how we act, the kind of homes we're going to want to live in. But more importantly, our cities. And this is going to be one of the hardest changes uh, to allow for moving forward because they're already built. Right. They're, They're built. They've been planned. There's a lot of plans coming. That's going to be one of the biggest changes that we're going to face. Interestingly enough, though, you also say that because of this reshape in our cities, that there's a lot more small business opportunities in suburbia and regional Australia.
1: Yeah. And the, the main argument for this is that traditionally the Australian cities have all those jobs and the big uh, skyscrapers in the city centre. Yes. All of a sudden we're taking those jobs out of the skyscrapers, at least to a certain degree, and put them back into the homes. People live in suburbia, people live in the outer suburbs. So that means that while you just simply spend more time in your local suburb, you're simply more likely to buy a coffee at the local coffee shop, to do local retailing, simply because you're more around and because we are less likely to travel around that much in a city. So we will become more uh, cities of neighborhoods rather than highly centralized cities. Um, This is actually horrible news if you're invested in the inner city, um, because your game plan has changed completely. But the existing businesses in suburbia they would benefit massively from this and of course suburbia will not be ready all the small businesses can't just handle all the demand that is occurring um, in right now and in the future so new business opportunities are there for the uh, for the bold <laughs> australians that are willing to risk it to have a go and to really understand the needs that people might have. There are completely new business opportunities popping they, up.
0: They, they very much are. And you make note and you mention, of course, you talk all the time about the changing nature of the workforce. And and that kind of, again, is, you know, a lot of people working from home where they weren't before. And also that the, the way our attitude towards our homes is going to change. In, in fact, we're going to need bigger homes because we're going to need a, an isolated room, not just a desk in the kitchen to set up the laptop.
1: Uh, th- that's right if you work from home once or twice a month you can just simply work from the kitchen bench that's all right but if your home becomes your main office you do need a separate room you do need a zoom room with a door to keep the kids and the cats out um, so that means all of a sudden you need one more bedroom that's fine um, if you can afford it. But we also know that demographically speaking, the biggest movement in the 2020s will be the millennial generation, the biggest procrastinators that have ever been uh, walking the Australian continent, who invented right. the gap year, who uh, married later in life, who stayed at university longer, who buy their first home later in life. That these big procrastinators over the next 10 years will be adding 1.7 kids to the households. They need a Zoom room. All of a sudden, the millennials that are currently living in one and two-bedroom apartments or houses need three to four bedrooms in their home. That will they'll compl-
0: become they'll become their parents, Simon.
1: Absolutely, f- like every generation yep. before them, they're doing the yeah. same things. They're just uh, doing it with a delay of seven, eight, ten years or something like this.
0: Now that's that's actually a great segue, and um, I'm I'm noting that I'm. I'm always run out of time when I love getting into these topics, but you uh, also write a blog and I'm just gonna read quickly from it because it segues into what you said. Our obsession with having a meaningful job is a mental health crisis in the making. We will never run an economy solely on meaningful jobs and we must change our attitude towards work. I, I, you know, this, you, you talk about this follow your passion, live your dream, be your own boss, be happy narrative is simultaneously great advice and a mental health crisis in the making. Now, th- this, is, this is true of, of the millennials, right? They want a meaningful job. They want to feel great. What's wrong with nine to five?
1: Uh, exactly. It's, it's a matter of how you view your job. So the problem with the millennial generation is that um, the meaning of life must come from somewhere. It doesn't come from God anymore biggest no. atheistic uh, generation it doesn't come from the family as of yet simply because millennials don't have a family yet they're just about to start one so you attach the meaning of life to the place that you hang out 10 hours every day in so that's your job but all of a sudden your job must shoulder the burden of the meaning of life for some jobs that is wonderful and it works out, but for the majority of jobs, this is probably too much to bear. And so by constantly reinforcing this narrative of work must be meaningful uh, beyond the obvious of earning an income and you know not being uh, tortured at work, if you will. And that just creates what I call a work image issues, issue, which is the office equivalent to the body image issue, where you look at these sexy bodybuilders and models on Instagram, and then you look at yourself and you go, well, this could be better. And it's aspirational. Absolutely. It's exactly this, what is occurring um, at, at the workspace where you have millennials on well remunerated jobs who are absolutely miserable. And I'm all for people. Um, trying to make the jobs meaningful, but don't bet on it and don't be depressed if it doesn't work out, particularly if you're in in the early stage of your career.
0: Well, you say we can't create an economy where all jobs align perfectly with the personal passions and preferences of all workers. Isn't that just logic and common sense?
1: It it is absolutely logical. We've got 13 million jobs in Australia or thereabouts, and there's no way that all of those jobs perfectly align with the uh, inner passions of every single Australian it doesn't work but we are telling a narrative that kind of suggests that this is uh, what your job must do and that you are a failure if you're in a job that uh, doesn't make you want to jump out of bed uh, very excitedly in the morning every day and that's just unlike, a mental health unlike crisis you the, the making
0: but unlike the job that you have Simon
1: Oh, I do jump out of the bed in the morning. <laughs> I know.
0: And and for that, and we appreciate that. Thank you so much for joining us today. Um, I, I have to wrap this up, but let me just jump in very quickly and say everybody in YouTube land that is watching right now, if you haven't subscribed to the SME TV channel, please do. Uh, to the Piedmont Studio, thank you for making us look and sound good exceptionally good every week, to the SMEA Association for your kind support, otherwise we wouldn't be here. For any comments, tips, tricks, stories, you can email them directly to me, news at smea.org.au. And of course, we're across all the social platforms. We don't have as many followers on Twitter as Simon does, but we're giving it a real good go. Thank you very much for for being here today, Simon. My pleasure. Thank you. We'll see you soon. Thank you.